0: If we go back, say, 10 years ago, plus or minus, the shale revolution in the U.S. was very much a tell-me story. Tell me what you're going to do. Tell me about this new play you just developed that I've never heard of and how great the economics are, and how you're not paying too much for acreage and you're going to be able to bring your 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 well costs down and your productivity on those wells are going to go up. So just tell me and here's the money. But what, what has happened in the shale plays is we've now transitioned to an actual show. Capital markets are shut off. We, we all acknowledge that. You've got to live within cash flow. And so now investors are saying, show me you can sustainably run your business, generate more operating cash flow than the CapEx that's required to maintain that operating cash flow, and you're going to generate free cash flow, and then you're going to have capital return to me as an investor. So once you start to do that in the show me story, I think capital returns in some way.
1: The Energy in Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, Global Energy Demand, Access to Capital Markets, ESG, and Workforce Innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Lockton Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Good morning, everybody. It's Leslie Beyer with the Energy and Transition podcast coming to y'all this morning from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. Um, we're so excited about the guest that we have today. It's Kyle Ramachandran, President and CFO at Solaris Oilfield Infrastructure. We are going to have a fantastic conversation kind of around the topics of this podcast, around oil and gas role, specifically in energy transition. All of the emerging technologies, the automation and the emissions reduction that companies in our space are really doing and embracing their role in a lower carbon future. Um, so, welcome, Kyle. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Thanks, Leslie, for having me. Excited to talk about what we'll talk about.
1: Of course. So, you're the third guest. Okay. So exciting. Um, we're still kind of... Third time's a charm. I know, we're still figuring out exactly how to do all this, but it's been so fun so far and I appreciate you taking the time. Great. So why don't we just start a little bit with your background, kind of how you started and just how Solaris came to be as a company?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I'm originally from the Northeast. So not from. So people Texas. love
1: you up in the old fields. Yeah. You don't have yeah. accent like mine.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's it's been an interesting transition. But I mean, honestly, I've been here in Texas for probably about six years, yeah. and it's just been great. Um, I don't have any ambitions of going back up northeast outside of maybe the months of June, July, and August. Right. It's every summer. Miserable. It's pretty tough. <laughs> uh, this year during quarantine, it was really tough. Uh-huh. Um. But anyway, grew up in the Northeast, uh, went to college in Boston, started out in finance like a lot of of folks do in investment banking. Mm -hmm. Um, Spent a couple of years as a generalist, knew that I wanted to transition into private equity. And First Reserve was a large private equity fund that was doing interviews. Energy sounded interesting. It was a global industry. It impacted everybody. Uh Um, It was essential to everything we do. And much of that is still true today. Um, so I said that's interesting i'll I'll go and interview with first Reserve, um not knowing a whole lot about the space um ended up getting an offer uh, to join First Reserve in their Connecticut office and focus on the oil field services sector, so joined in mid two thousand nine um which was an interesting time. Oil had just rallied to you know north of a hundred dollar. Uh, oil or uh, WTI, Brent, et cetera. Gas prices are really high. Yeah, First Reserve is in a really unique position. They'd raised a ton of capital and were putting it all to work. So it's a very exciting time. And um, did
1: people, were people like, why are you getting into energy? Why are you getting into oil full services? Or in that world, did they see, you know, that the industry was booming at that moment? And so that made sense.
0: Yeah. And it was joining a very large bulge bracket private equity fund, which at that time in my career was the ambition, right? right? That was, and that was the path. I said, I'm going to get into private equity, rise through the ranks and and be a, a big deal guy on wall street. Yeah. Um, and it was a great learning experience. Um, I went through, um, a couple workout situations. We had some large investments that were done in 2008 mm-hmm. that were probably done on peak earnings with too much debt. Yeah. And so learned some of the lessons there uh-huh. about kind of, the challenges around leverage in this, this industry and, mm-hmm. and not to jump ahead to Solaris but one of the things we've held core is stay away from leverage. Cause right. you got to live through the cycles.
1: You guys have a great balance. sheet.
0: Right yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it was a really um, formative period of time in terms of skill sets and sort of founding, rounding out my, my um, foundational skills to be a professional, but I knew I kind of want to do something different. Um, so I had an opportunity to stay at the fund, but alternatively, there was an opportunity to go to Brazil to join a portfolio company, uh-huh. move to Rio, where I didn't speak any Portuguese. Yeah. Um, but just throw myself in the middle of it. Learn uh-huh. learn what it was like to build an E&P company. Yes. Learn a new language, a new culture. Um, I had done OFS mainly at First Reserve, and this was, again, an opportunity to, to really learn what E&P looked uh-huh. like at the ground level. And I Stand thought that there. was really important to have that perspective if I wanted a career in in energy. Right. So I kind of... Exited my New York apartment with <laughs> my girlfriend at the time, with my now wife, um, and we moved to Rio. Yeah. And it was incredible. It was uh, 2011 to 13, 14 timeframe where uh-huh. um, Brazil had gone through a pretty big boom and was starting to kind of top off. And by the time we left, it really had started to inflect on the way down. And mm-hmm. it's been a really rough seven to 10 years for them. But fantastic experience. Wow. Um, we we drilled some wells offshore, had great great success with the drill bit. Look to market the company, ran into some challenges there with the buyer universe. And it was sort of my first introduction to you can create a great asset, but if you don't have a deep buyer universe of it, uh-huh. you can kind of get stuck. Critical. Yeah. So um, I knew that that was a transition role for me. I wasn't going to live in Brazil forever. Unless, um,
1: but you always go back for Carnival. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I, <laughs> I think it's sort of one of those things you've done it once, you yeah, don't need to do that's it again. About it. If you you know the Cariocas, the people in Rio, they yes. they all leave for Carnival. That's so funny. they they go and you know find I've something a little more quiet. It's uh-huh. yeah, it's it's a cultural experience. See, we lived on a fourth floor apartment, and it's a full week. Yeah, the first day of Carnival, we went somewhere for a, a big party and whatnot. The second, so we had a long night. <laughs> 8 a.m., we just hear do 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 It just keeps <laughs> getting louder and louder and louder. And you know, a half hour later, sure enough, we look down and we have this great photo with our street. And it's just jam-packed, you know, for as long as you can see just people.
1: And all dressed and parade. And- dressed
0: and, you know, it's, having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's it's, awesome. It's a- that's
1: what it's like in DC during inauguration week, just yeah. in case you ever wonder. Okay.
0: Try to stay away from, <laughs> from that.
1: Yeah. We all run our houses out on, on that week.
0: Too. Okay. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Carnival, if you have a, an apartment on the beach in Rio, you can uh, generate some good cash flow. Yeah. So anyway, I I knew I wanted to get back to the US, came back to Houston. So I'd lived in New York really for four or five years, Rio for a couple of years, and then moved back to Houston without really any roots, um, but knew that this was the place to be right. for the next in stage. Space. And and I really hadn't paid all that much attention to the shales because I was down in, in Brazil and that was all offshore. Oh yeah, you know, massive projects. Our wells were one hundred and fifty to two hundred million dollar wells, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just a completely different ball game. And but I knew there was a, a big thing going on in the U.S. And so I just kind of networked and got introduced to Bill Zartler, who right. is. One of the founders of Denim Capital, Bill, um, had a kind of a mix of private equity, entrepreneurship, and operating business experience. I thought it was really unique. Um, and he was at a point in his career where he wanted to find a couple of deals, build companies, um, and build a team around it. And it seemed to be very synergistic with me where I had some skills but was looking to get more experience mm-hmm. and found somebody who you know, I thought would do that for me. Um, but I didn't commit <laughs> until... Because Bill, you got a lot of a lot of these entrepreneurs in the oil and gas industry, a lot right. of ideas, and what you don't want to do is commit to something like that. Look up two years later, and you actually haven't done anything. Like mm-hmm. you've, you've looked at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So I said, once you write your first check to be committed to something, I'm in. So he did. Called <laughs> oh, me back.
1: wow! And I was in. Was he like you, damn millennial? <laughs> yeah,
0: a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and he kind of kids me for it now because it's I'm you know sure. six seven years later. yeah. But that was in early 14. So, again, back to $100 oil and things are great and we're going to raise all this capital and we're going to build all these companies. And we got our first deal going, which ultimately is the the company that we're – the public company we're running today. And, again, it was 500 frat crews, 2,000 rigs. Times were good. Mm -hmm. And we had a a niche – product technology that had been developed, and we were going to build a rental business around it. So it was it was an interesting time to start because we were looking at a dressable market that was very large, and we didn't need a big piece of it to be successful. Sure enough, fast forward 12 months later, and the world is completely, not even 12, more like 10, right. 6 months later. world's completely changed. The Saudis come out, and they say they're going to put the you know pedal to the metal and more production after Thanksgiving in 14, and oil craters. And so we go through the first real cycle that I've kind of been through. But thankfully, we raised all equity capital. There was no debt. We had um, our own money, friends and family, and a very uh, supportive sponsor Mm -hmm. that said, look, we're just going to be patient and we're going to push this technology. We think it's got benefits that allow operators to do more at lower prices, which became a theme that's played out really well, right? If you can find ways to to help them operate in a lower cost environment, you can win.
1: Yeah. And that is... Been the case for the past few years. Exactly.
0: So, in a, in a weird way, that downturn really played into our hand right. and allowed us to build the business. So, that was, you know, 14, 15, 16 was all about trying to push a new product and develop and learnings from you put something out and you learn a lot. So, you got to mm-hmm. keep going back to the drawing board and keep iterating. So, that was pretty foundational. The other thing we did early 2016, we realized and this was sort of at the real bottom oil got down to mid 20s, decided to start another business. Um, which is when we started the midstream business. So we've got Solaris Oilfield Infrastructure, which is a rental equipment business where we manufacture ourselves, service it, et cetera, for completions. And then we started a midstream business, which is focused on um, produce water management, whether right. that be transfer, disposal, recycling, sending mm-hmm. it back. But we we did that because we felt like there weren't people paying attention to it. The Delaware Basin was going to have high water cuts. Or it did have high water cuts and, and you needed different infrastructure, just like on the sand side, what we identified was the old infrastructure, which is old technology, just didn't work for today's frack. Right. Not only the amount of sand per lateral foot, but the number of stages per day were going up, the mm-hmm. number of pads or wells per pad were going up. So the the infrastructure needed to change. And I think what we've been able to identify is trends and then what infrastructure is fit for that trend and how can we play a part of it. So getting back to it we kind of had those both going in parallel in 16 timing is everything late 16 capital markets really started to open up mm-hmm. um keen was the or and now next year was the first real us oriented completion business to go public they did it in january but they came out with their initial s1 i want to say december november and bill and i got it and we said wow, why don't we do this right. for, for SOI? We needed growth capital. We had a backlog of orders from customers for new equipment. We had access to our own equity from the private equity sponsor, but there was more attractive capital mm-hmm. in the public markets. And those windows opened and closed very quickly.
1: Right. They're closed right now.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely faced with that today. So early January of 17, we hired some lawyers and some banks, and we got everyone in a room. And three weeks later, we had our first S1. Very compressed timeline, but we knew we just had to go. We had a simple story, and we had to go. Um, So that was mid-January. By mid-May, we were public. Mm -hmm. So very compressed timeline. and We kind of were one of the last few companies to get out in that early 17 Mm -hmm. window, um, which really set us up with a bunch of growth capital. We didn't need to touch the debt capital markets. So from 17 to 19, it was just growth. We went from, call it, 20 systems to today we've got 160 We grew by roughly eight times. Um, And the market obviously grew a lot in Mm -hmm. that period of time as well. And now we're much lower than we were in in late 16-ish. So it's been kind of round. It's come full circle. Um, But those three years are really just growth and execution. And now we find ourselves in, well, what do we do next? You know, Mm -hmm. we've got great market share. We've got a great balance sheet. We've got great products. But at the end of the day, If we just stay complacent, we're probably going to see not a whole lot of growth just from the market. So we've got to find different ways to evolve and grow.
1: Well, I think that is a challenge that we face across OFS. You know, we have basically become so efficient that we've gotten our margins down to a razor thin line and we have to be able to keep executing, even though that the productivity level has definitely gone down. But that is a huge challenge. And I think what we're talking about now, especially in this post-pandemic environment, how so much has changed with our workforce, but also with the digital revolution and how everything is really changing to automation and ROI and machine learning. Can you talk a little bit about that as far as like, what Solaris is doing in that space. I know a lot of your products have that built in and right. that's where you're innovating to go next.
0: Yeah. And I, I think what's key there is a spirit around continued innovation. You know, in 14, when we started, it was about different steel, right? We we created a different kind of steel, not actual steel, but a different product, physical product that changed the way people were working. In the last few years, it's been more about how do we make it sticky? How do we make it more than just a steel? How do we make it the sensor that drives your entire supply chain rather than it's just where I store sand and chemicals and water? Right. It's actually the most critical junction that then drives a bunch of decisions upstream of it prior to getting on location. So that that is a fundamental strategy, is, mm-hmm. is core. Um, and the way we've done that is by implementing the right sensors, the right reliability, the right communication from a a data stream standpoint, getting it up to the cloud, getting it up into our customers, operating centers, integrating with their dashboards. Because the last thing people ultimately need is another app. Mm -hmm. People want it easy. So you've got to take the extra step to say, okay, here's my data that's available. I know you are looking at other screens. How do I integrate with what you have? To allow you to use your machine learning to make better decisions.
1: That's uh, an interesting concept because I see a lot of people saying we're rolling this out and use our app. And you know, but it's to- challenging.
0: We've seen it. We rolled out our app probably in 2016, yeah. and it, it's been it's been a long campaign. You've got to constantly educate people on it, and eventually you do get there. But the notion that one can just roll out an app and even if it does have perceived value, it's there's a um, a bit of momentum you've got to overcome uh-huh. for that individual. You got to make it easy. Um, so one of the things we've done actually with the physical equipment um, is implemented technology, in, which is software and hardware, to automate the delivery of sand mm-hmm. into the blender. So historically, going back four or five years, sand was delivered to location into multiple different containers, which were then individually operated. There was no central operating system. So you had multiple people running it. We solve that by putting one system in place. Everything goes into that system. It's operated by one individual. What we developed in early 19 was what we call Auto Hopper, which automates the delivery of sand into the blender where it's ultimately consumed based on the actual pull through rate of the blender. So, in other words, it used to be a guy who would look into a hopper and say, I need to speed up, I need to slow down, I got to maintain that. It's almost like an I love Lucy, like, you know, right. where she's speeding it up, <laughs> so like, Oh, it's gone too fast, now it's overfilling, right? Yeah. So, by integrating with the technology that's already out there, the blender and its controls, we've been able to Eliminate the person that was sitting mm-hmm. over that job and, and maybe not eliminate them, but get them into a role that they're now adding more right. value. That's an
1: important part of that. Exactly. Yeah. The evolution of our workforce. Exactly. The,
0: so types Those jobs. individuals would have been doing a very monotonous task. Right. They can now skill up mm-hmm. and start adding more value to their, to their employer and their customer. Um so it's a mix of, I would say, like peer data, just collecting data, but it's also how do you make the system run more efficiently, more simple. And when we look at the R&D and development of what we've got going on now, like sort of 2020 R&D for Solaris, it's around new equipment that further streamlines and automates processes that, quite frankly, are just antiquated. right? Um, And there's just been not a lot of momentum to change. If we look at the well site today, the drilling side, they've advanced so much, right? I mean. I don't know. I don't know the drilling site quite as well, but you know, if they had twenty people today, they've got three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, and the number of days to drill a well has come down just significantly. Completion side has been a little bit slower. Um, we've obviously seen a ton of development on the electric fleets, which um, we play a, a part in by our equipment being one hundred percent electric. I wanted to
1: ask you about yeah. that because I know your equipment can tie into all of that, and right. the electrification of the oil field is is so important right now, as we talk about reducing environmental footprint.
0: It's environmental footprint, but it's also cost, Mm -hmm. right? You know, if you're an operator and you're watching associated gas get flared or you're not getting a whole lot out of it when you send it down the pipeline, down to the refinery to get to, or or to the gas processing plant to get sold, you may have better value in using that gas to run your process. So it it sort of just makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so we've always been 100% electric and that was driven around reliability. So... It, and ESG is an interesting thing because a lot, and the way we kind of think about it is do what makes sense and what's right. It's probably going to tie pretty well to ESG.
1: It is. It, and it's going to tie back to your financials in a positive it, way, too. It,
0: exactly. And that, and so like the fundamentals of what we've been able to do from an environmental standpoint is uh-huh. we've reduced the footprint, we've reduced the carbon emissions, we've reduced the people required, we've reduced the trips to location. And those were all in some ways financially and market driven. Like we knew we could have a, a good business by doing that. And it turns out they're great for ESG as well. Mm-hmm. And without that, you know, we'd be kind of scratching our head with, oh no, we got to, we got to really come up with something mm-hmm.
1: here. Well, I, it's interesting because I see a lot of companies that are like, well, you know, how do we begin to approach ESG? And it's almost like. First of all, you wrap it around your mind that this is just a way of doing business. It is that also leads to the cost reduction. But as long as we're talking about that, so from the CFO perspective, right. ESG metrics—you know—how do you look at that across the enterprise and say, okay, h- how this impacts our access to capital markets? We talked about that, um, and and our investability.
0: Yeah, you you have to have an ESG story. That's just full stop. And I think it goes back to. Wrap your mind around that you need to have one and just start to think about what that really means. ESG has got multiple components, but if you think of the S and G on the S, do you take care of your people? Do you take care of your communities? Take care of your customers? Um, Do you look at um, your sourcing strategy? Are you you just, are you being logical about it? Um, You know, if you're going around and you're not giving, putting people in a safe environment, work environment, if you're not giving them opportunities to learn, they're not going to stick around. So that's just not good business. From a G standpoint, a governance standpoint, You know, our fundamental tenant has been the best governance is to have management with significant skin in the game. And that's, that's the way both of our businesses started. Mm-hmm. We wrote checks to buy the first piece of equipment. We wrote checks to put the first piece of pipeline in place. And that just creates a alignment where it's not, what is my salary this year? What's my bonus this mm-hmm. year? It's how do we create an enterprise that's worth a lot more than we've invested? That's how we really incentivize governance. And that drives good decision-making. We're not chasing growth because we have a compensation metric that says, if I have you know, 25% annual revenue growth, I get a big bonus or I get a bunch of stock. We just want to create equity value, which is really translated into earnings, sustainability of those earnings. And now what are you doing from an ESG standpoint not only because the investing community wants to see it, but they recognize that the operators are going to force it. So if you don't have that in your toolkit, you're going to be in some trouble. So from a, a CFO standpoint, the other component of it is measuring it. If you were know, you a new company and you were like, I can't, I, how, where do I start from? Just start measuring.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: measure your, your, your truck emissions, measure how you're manufacturing your equipment, where are you sourcing the water from, um what sorts of renewable sources of energy are you using or in your in your mix, or just tracking it provides the baseline and then from the baseline, you can really start to improve and what investors are looking for is on the e s g side and we can get in this a little bit is a show a tell me story tell me what you're going to do. nobody expects those involved in producing hydrocarbons in North America today to be carbon neutral tomorrow. It's, it's sort of a, a not real, a realistic ambition. So as long as you're kind of working towards something and you're continuing to progress, I think you'll get interest. But if you kind of turn your eyes or or close your eyes to it, you're, you're going to have an uphill battle with the investing community.
1: I agree. And I mean, just wrapping your mind around the fact that we aren't going to go from zero to 60 overnight I mean, we saw we were just chatting when we sat down about the new uh, rags out in California on, you know, cars. We will not have internal combustion engines
0: mandated by the government, which is just a uh, it's just an interesting concept to get your head wrapped around.
1: It is because we know those of us in the industry know what we do to actually reduce emissions and how important, especially natural gas is to the overall mix. You know, one of the things that. I really focus on and hope that the reach of this podcast um, is able to to make some penetration on is the fact that it is a mix and the mix is regionally specific. It matters. Yes. You know, in some places in rural Africa, solar is what's going to work. Right. And in some places, hydro is what's going to work. But we are not going to pull oil and gas out of that mix when there are so many emerging non-OECD populations. Right that require that to live. And, and we just don't get that message out enough, but I hope that stories, you know, like these from Solaris and, and everything that you guys are doing and everything that we're doing as a sector, especially to reduce emissions on behalf of our customers, which right. at the end of the day is also an important piece of that. We talked about BP and some others, um, announcing their carbon goals, uh, and, and that's fantastic but then they turn right around to their suppliers and say, right, how are you going to get me there? Absolutely. And I think that's a really important part of the Solaris story, too, because y'all give full visibility down the supply chain. That's an important part of ESG. Absolutely. Is being able to say as an operator, I know exactly where all this is coming from. I know what the metrics are, environmental, social, and governance on all of this down through my supply chain.
0: Yeah, it, it, It's the new price of entry. You've, you've got to have it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about the show me and, and all of that. Explain kind of your experience in that as you grew into shale and kind of started getting into that business.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I, and I stole the concept from, from somebody, but I, it, it really resonated with me. If we go back, say, 10 years ago, plus or minus, the shale revolution in the U.S. was very much a tell me story. Tell me what you're going to do. Tell me about this new play you just developed that I've never heard of and how great the economics are and how you're not paying too much for acreage and you're going to be able to bring your, your, your well costs down and your productivity on those wells are going to go up. So just tell me and here's the money. I believe in you. You're going to, you're going to do it. Isn't that a crazy way? To- it, but it's, it, 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 but it's the way capital markets work. Like, yeah. you know, you, you won't find a. Great investment if you're not willing to believe somebody who's who's telling you something. Because if it's known and it's already happening, it may not be a great investment because where's the growth from? So I think, I think, you know, capital markets drove capital into the oil and gas sector in the last 10 years because of the tell me piece of it. And then the belief in the cyclicality of the industry, there will be peaks and opportunities to buy in at good times. So a lot of capital came into the space to drive i mean we went from five or six million barrels a day to the u.s to double that right i Mm -hmm. mean that didn't happen with a lot of capital and a lot of tell me but it was a show me because companies did significantly in improve and increase their production in the u.s and i mean let's not forget we went from importing you know whatever it was 14 million barrels a day to now less than 10 right so that's a pretty significant shift on developing the independence of America, which I think is important right, to in our
1: national security,
0: national security. And I think we're certainly seeing, seeing it with COVID, our reliance on the global supply chain and in the inherent risks in that for a number of reasons. But what, what has happened in the shale plays is we've now transitioned to an actual show me capital markets are shut off. We, we all acknowledge that you've got to live within cash flow, And so now investors are saying, show me, you can sustainably run your business, generate more. Operating cash flow, then the capex that's required to maintain that operating cash flow. And you're going to generate free cash flow. And then you're going to have capital return to me as an investor. So once you start to do that in the show me story, I think capital returns in some way. Because if we look at the capital markets today, all of the capital is being driven to the tell me stories in the tech world. And there's a lot of excitement there. There's a lot of opportunities. Um, Snowflake was a company that recently mm-hmm. went public you know, and their model is we're just going to integrate all this stuff you do. And the equity markets are saying that's a huge opportunity, right? Somebody that can make it easy. And and just like we were talking about with the operators and, and feeding them data, it's a huge opportunity. Now they're, they're telling me story because they haven't done a ton of it. They, they've got some growth, but they're not profitable. They're a long way from profitable, but people are believing it. And I think there's some truth to it. We've just got to, get people back into our space because we are a mature company, our mature industry Mm -hmm. that's generating sustainable cash flow in an ESG friendly way. And then I think that's when things get a little bit better.
1: I agree. It's going to improve our access, not only to the capital markets, but also to the talent that we're going to need to get us to the next level. We talked a little bit about that, but we're going to have to do so much reskilling and we're going to have to really, Get comfortable with the fact that our workforce is going to be smaller, just because Correct. we're relying so much more on automation. Um, but how are we going to attract? I mean, you're very humble about your background, but how are we going to attract people like you from, you know, Harvard and all of these to well, come? I'm into not our,
0: Harvard guy, but <laughs> Boston College,
1: Boston College. But to come back into our industry, you know, how how are we going to attract that kind of interest? The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oil field services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition please join us at PISA.org.
0: You know, I've thought about it and it's almost, it's, it's sort of a bad way to think about it in some ways, but get them while they're young. Yeah. You've got to get them hooked early. You've got to get people thinking about the narrative differently than what they're getting, say, in mainstream media. And so I think that's, that's a big challenge. So historically, the large OFS companies were out on campuses doing a ton of recruiting and, and I haven't followed as well. I'm sure they're doing recruiting, but I'm sure the numbers are down. But companies like Solaris are and need to continue to be more f- at the forefront of those universities to get that young talent into internship programs, introduce them to, you can actually come here and you may have a ton of perspective that somebody like me who's been in the industry for 15 years doesn't have. And you can completely change the way I've been thinking about something. We hired somebody recently, a uh, recent MBA from UT. And he, I said, here's, here's a bunch of data. We, ha- we don't know what to do with this. Just play around with it. And he knew a programming language that I didn't know existed. Yeah. And he came back in a matter of, I don't know, three or four hours with the work product that would have taken me several days in Excel. And so it's out there, you, and, and he's a, an engineer and a great guy that wants to be in this space and he loves it, but we got lucky there. Mm-hmm. We've got to get those sort of characters, guys like sujit in their early days and get them here, show them that they can have an impact. They can actually design something, see it in the field, make it happen, add value. That, that you, So you got to get them early and you got to get them excited about the positive side of it rather than a narrative that hydrocarbons are evil. Or um, going away. Or going away. Exactly. Yeah. The other narrative is why would I get a career in mm-hmm. hydrocarbons when everything's going to be solar and wind, you know, in a matter of days, right? I mean, there's certainly <laughs> Which that is laughable. Narrative. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's it's a marketing and education campaign. I, I think you and I may have been at something, um, a breakfast last year. Where it was mentioned that we don't have the right marketing in our industry, we you know we, we hire don't. the the wrong sort of folks that are saying that the oil and gas companies need to be producing green algae, right? That's sort of like one of the large E and P's that's been their marketing yes. spiel for a long time. And there are individuals, you know, I'll mention Chris Wright at Liberty in our space who do a tremendous job of promoting and giving the right data. Um, and we just need more of that.
1: We do. I think that's going to have to be a requirement of our leaders yes. because we will not be able to attract those folks. And, you know, an imp- another important part of ESG, especially under governance, is our culture. Yes. You know, I've I've been out to those tech companies and, you know, my husband worked for a while at Facebook and he was like, Leslie, there is a woodworking shop right around the corner. If you just kind of get stuck on your work and you want to go work on some cabinets for a minute, like you walk around the corner, you get a free lunch and do some woodworking. And, you know, we don't, not that we need that because right. we're trying to get business right. done. Yeah. But how are we going to become more attractive? You mentioned Chris Wright at Liberty. I've heard stories of you know, the amazing culture that they have and how they treat their employees. Right. How are we going to create that culture in the oil field? I know I, as a woman, find myself, you know, definitely the only person of my gender in a lot of meetings. Sure. Did you face that coming in as a younger person? And people are like, Well, you're a president CFO. You, you can't obviously know as much as I do. You know, what was your experience with that?
0: Yeah, no, <clears throat> there's there's no doubt that not a not a stigma, but that we we've we've not done a great job of balancing the recruiting. Now, I will say that I'm proud of what we've been able to do at Solaris when I kind of pull up our management page on the website. Mm-hmm. I do find it to be quite balanced. And that was one of Bill's early fundamental tenets was. Let's bring multi-skilled in here. Let's not just bring the guys that have been doing and gals have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. We need some of that, obviously, but where we've really found innovation has been through those that haven't been out to a well site very Mm -hmm. often. So a little anecdote, we were talking to a company that's developed a new um, piece of technology recently, and we met their engineer who'd done it, 26-year-old guy. He was a intern at the company during college, joined had really no field experience and they said, here's a problem. We want to do this process, but we don't know how to make it happen. Go and figure it out. He's a mechanical engineer. So he knew how to kind of figure it out, but wasn't kind of, um, didn't have the biases associated with, well, this is the way I've done it for so long. So you got to be willing as the individual who's either younger or a different gender or whatever it may be to put yourself out there because the opportunities are there, but you got to take some ownership of it. You know, they're not necessarily going to be handed to you because you're right. It's not always going to go to you because you may not fit the natural, the mold of what people are looking for. But I think culture is key. And um, for us, it's been about entrepreneurism. It's been a big thing we've driven into culture and we've been able to pull people out of larger organizations with that core tenant. So if you're a an engineer at a large equipment company, you have to go through months and months of process just to get. You know, approval to pursue something with us—it's walk down the hall. You got a good idea, makes sense. Let's go, let's go try it. We're going to be—I'm um, the CFO on it. We're going to be balancing how much money we spend on it, but let's go <laughs> yeah. try stuff. You know, the Facebook mantra is "move fast and break things," mm-hmm. and and it's oil and gas sector, so we have to be careful about breaking things because there's an element of safety involved. Um, but but I think we've got to
1: breaking molds for sure. Yeah,
0: and we've got to be open to pull from, learn from those others, right? The other cultures and, and, um, businesses. I think COVID has done a good job of educating all of us. It certainly the oil and gas industry was slower to adopt. I would say just remote working relative to other, um, industries, you know, certainly the tech industry, people have been working remote for years. And I think there's great value in it because from an employee recruitment standpoint, you can provide flexibility. If you've got a doctor appointment or you've got a kid issue, work from home, but we're gonna give you the tools that allow you to be productive, and we're gonna hold you accountable to be productive in that environment. Working from home is no longer a sort of blow off day, right? It it means you're really working. Right. So we were slower to do that, and I think we've we've now all had to adopt to that. But what I do think we are struggling with is the innovation piece, not only internally, but also with the industry. You've gotta be in front of your customers, you've gotta be with your colleagues, you've gotta be with your industry partners, even things like pizza meetings, right? It's just it's been tough. It's tough. Zoom is—it's a good uh, tool, but to rely on it for eight hours a day, ten hours a day, for five days a week, it's tough. And I, I'm not convinced we figured out how to create the same level of original thought. I think we can get process done via that, but I'm not sure we we brainstorm quite as well.
1: Oh, I agree with that a hundred percent. I've been preaching that, and. It, it is a good tool if there's a project that's already ongoing and everyone on the team already knows each other great right. we can get it executed that way but as far as innovation and strategy around you know what you need to do to change things which we're all having to do right now Absolutely. it's it's difficult to do it that way and there's a lot of value to being in a room and we can do that now we can do it safely right but you know there's just special hurdles around that but thanks for bringing up the piece of piece we have actually just transitioned. All of our certification programs, so we have executive coaching esG dNI programs that people were in the middle of, and we had to transition all of that content to remote right and I've been shocked at how effective that it actually has been because you know you are able to do some targeted networking and breakout rooms and things like that, which Okay, that's cool. You also can reach a gl- a global audience. Sure. You know, there were people from Dubai in, in the DI yep. session that I was in yesterday that could not have been there had, you know, it been down the street necessarily. So that you can appreciate, but I agree with you. Um it it has been a challenge on moving forward. But I do think that it's been good for the industry to try and Absolutely. and embrace that a little more. We've had a hard time retaining women. That, you know, historically need more flexibility because they're taking care of an elderly parent or they have kids at home right. that they're oftentimes, you know, primarily responsible for. And I'd like to see our industry moving that way. It's going to take that. And the more that we can talk about how we're focusing on our culture and changing our culture right. to embrace people of entirely different backgrounds is only going to benefit us but we simultaneously have to be talking about what we're doing for the environment yes. too, right? And how we're not ever going away. So it's a tough, I think it's a tough road ahead for us, but I hope that more leaders, and like you mentioned, like with Bill and like with Chris Wright, can really stand up and be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna focus just on the weeds of the business all the time. I am gonna take a leadership role right. and really kind of try and get some visibility for what we do. Because Oldfield Services, man, we got a great story. And there's a lot of innovation of innovation happening across the industry. Absolutely. But really from Oldfield Services, that's where the tech comes from. So I love to hear that story from Solaris and everything that y'all are working on the tech and, and on ESG and the leaders you've been in the space. But on, okay, so back to the topic of being home during quarantine. Yes. You you've had an exciting quarantine. Yes. I thought mine was exciting because I moved, but you've actually added a member of the family, which is awesome.
0: Yes. Um, how
1: has that been for you and Tiffany who I mean, and let's talk a little bit about your amazing wife, who also, when y'all moved to Houston, has done so much professionally. She really its She's a little entrepreneur. In- yep, she yep, is. Yep. So tell me a little about y'all's quarantine experience.
0: Yeah, the first three or four months was great because it was um, a lot of extra time with a 14 to 18 month old. Yeah. Um, and it's just such a cool transition age and they're just into everything. And so that was just really, really special. But um, sort of midway through, we we introduced our, our our daughter Paige in July. So we've now got two hundred tw- two two hundred two during quarantine. Yeah. I'm gonna get a t-shirt made <laughs>
1: two under two. Um,
0: but it's it's been it's been amazing. Um, you know, it, again, I go back to we're gonna find ways going forward for people to have better balance in mm-hmm. their life, and I think they're gonna be more productive. Um, one of the things I've done in in quarantine is figured out ways to cut sort of the Things in the day that really aren't driving a lot of value. And you've got to be willing to just not check email quite as frequently uh-huh. during times where you really want, if you've got two or three things you really want to get done, get those done before you get into that churn. You wake up, you flip open your computer, you're, you're <laughs> lost for the day. <laughs> I know. Right? You're just in the churn. Um, so I think quarantine has, has helped us get more disciplined in that because you know that I can finish what I'm doing and I can go hang out with the kids for a half hour before that next call. And, and that's really valuable and special. Um so that that's been great. No doubt the challenges again have been from just as a leader creating an environment that still has the same feel for everybody. And we've tried Zoom happy hours and we've tried, yeah. you know, the book club and we've yes. we've tried different special interest groups and it's just it's been tough. So I think you made a point, you know, can we do this safely? And I think, you know, the answer is yes with the right protocol in place. And so we we've done some strategy meetings and we'll continue to do that. Just again, with the right spacing and giving people, you know, the, the, their fresh air, if you will, and and I think, but we can't avoid it and be afraid of of coming back to some level of normal because we really need it. We do for our health, for the health of our businesses, et cetera,
1: and for our economy. Yes. That was the last thing I wanted to ask you about. So you know, we have got to get our economy back on track, and it's going to require demand going yep. back up. So what do you, you know, hear? What do you see from the analysts? What's your, you know, kind of best? guess at what we're looking at next year?
0: Well, more than anything, I believe in the human spirit to get things done and figure out solutions to problems. So clearly COVID is a big challenge. Um, I think we've, we've mitigated a lot of it in terms of the protocols we've put in place. You know, you go on a, a well site today and those well sites are operating. They're just with different protocols. So that hasn't stopped. You go to restaurants and they're operating you know the notion of everyone going to a bar for 6 hours on a saturday night and maybe that wasn't good for any of us and glad those are <laughs> days are behind me but yeah. so we don't have that but we can get still a lot done and so that part of human innovation but then you know from a from a cure or a vaccine or whatever it is i'm confident that we've got the brightest minds in the world getting after that 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 are going to find a way so we will get back to a normal new nor- normal And we'll look back at this as a really challenging time, but a lot we learned and and we got better for it. So, you know, from an overall supply-demand function in in the world, you know, I think there's a couple narratives. One is continued efficiencies. So, you know, a, a barrel of oil is going longer now because engines are more efficient, et cetera. So we'll have that kind of headwind. But we can't deny the tailwind of the emerging middle class in places like China and India in Brazil right. and Africa, they want access to cheap, affordable, clean energy. And I think we can just be a really critical component to that. And I don't, we can't lose sight of that. We've got to be proud of what we've been able to do in the U.S. And there is a narrative that it's that it's evil. And I, I don't think that's accurate. I think there's always a trade-off in anything you do in life. And so there's nothing that's pure altruistic. And you may have altruistic ambitions, but there's a cost to it. You know, the renewables are not, carbon neutral. They, they, they may be carbon neutral when they're running, but the notion of carbon neutral from start to finish is not there. Their
1: supply chain definitely relies on hydrocarbons and petrochemicals, 100%. It,
0: exactly. And so there's no perfect solution. And I think a balance of of renewables is great. And I think Texas has done a great job of it. What we haven't done is eliminated the the backup, if you will, um, natural gas and, and hydrocarbon-based um, sources like we've done in other states. And now, I mean, the notion that we're going to be green, but we're going to cut people's electricity off in the heat of the summer, which is going to cause, you know, people to be sick or.
1: Especially lower income. E- exactly. Who are affected disproportionately. on Right.
0: That. And, and you think about the economy getting back. Lower energy prices will drive a stronger economy because people will have more discretionary income to spend more. They'll use more, et cetera. So it's, it's got that flywheel effect. So I'm confident we'll get back there. I, I'm confident people will be getting back on airplanes. Um, I don't know when. Um, And it's going to be kind of a a rough period of time here. The operators have reduced supply, which is healthy. um, And capital markets are saying, we're not going to give you any more money to to ramp up. So, I mean, quite frankly, I think there's a a pretty strong conviction around a tightness at some point in the global oil market because supply is coming down and it just doesn't turn on overnight. Um, And I think there's a belief that demand will come back now. There's certainly people talking about, will we get back to 100 million barrels a day of oil in the world being consumed? And maybe not because there's a balance of people working from home versus everyone commuting. Mm -hmm. But it certainly will be higher than it is today. So I'm ambitious or I'm I'm excited about it. Um, And I believe in the future of uh, our industry to play a big part in providing what we've been able to do over the last 100 years, which is increasing the quality of life for the world. And I think we've got to be confident that that's what we're doing. And we got to continue to get better. Can't be complacent about it, but we can't be afraid or shy of, of who we are.
1: I agree with that hundred percent That's a great positive note to end it on. Kyle Ramachandra, thank you so much for your leadership. Appreciate you being on the advisory board at PISA. We are so grateful to have leaders like yourself and for everything y'all are doing at Solaris and say how to bill for us.
0: Will do. And, and thanks, Leslie, and everything PISA does. Um, you know, you're kind of a, a hero to a lot of us because you guys keep us you keep us going, you know, in COVID. I think there could have been organizations like PISA that just sort of disappeared. Internally, people wouldn't have been asking, Where's PISA? Where's PISA? And you guys are pushing a lot. And I think that's what the stronger organizations need to do and will do to be successful. So thank you for that.
1: I appreciate you saying that. Anybody else with wonderful feedback and positive um, comments for us on the podcast, too, please reach out to Leslie at energyintransition.org. We'll sign off um, for this afternoon. Thanks again, Kyle, and thank you to everybody for listening. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com, and we'll catch you on the next episode.